Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, titled Precision Medicine and Advanced Prostate Cancer, a focus on PARP inhibitors, is provided by Axis Medical Education and supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals, LP, Clovis Oncology, Incorporated, Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation, and Pfizer, Incorporated. Before starting this activity, please be sure to review the disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Here's your host, Dr. Celestia Higano. My name is Tia Higano from the University of Washington. I'm very pleased to be with Dr. Joachim Mateo, who is medical oncologist from Barcelona, and Dr. Daniel Petrolak, who is another medical oncologist from Yale. I, I do want to mention that We'll likely be talking about some off-label use of drugs. These are our conflicts of interest. Um, here's our learning objectives. Let's just talk a little bit about BRCA mutations in prostate cancer. If you think of genetic alterations, really the treatment algorithm has to do with those who do and those who don't have genetic alterations. And this could be either in the germline uh, and or the tumor testing. And so in either case, Right now, the paradigm is to go through the regular options. Some of these are not available all over the world, but you would use any one of a number of treatment options for patients with metastatic CRPC. However, in those with these specialized mutations, either the DDR mutations or microsatellite instability, et cetera, we have the options of using either PARP inhibitors or platinum-based chemo, for the DDR mutations, or pembrolizumab now in those patients who have failed the other usual treatments who have microsatellite insufficiency. And in that category, that's a very small percent of patients, but it is there, and, it, and there are some very good success stories with this approach under those circumstances. So what are the DNA damage response pathways all about? Well, we know that our cellular DNA is subject to continuous damage from various environmental factors or endogenous sources. And so our bodies are continually dealing with these thousands of breaks every day. They're single or double-stranded DNA breaks. And the DDR pathway has evolved to maintain the DNA sequence the way it's supposed to run so that the engine runs smoothly. But several... Types of repair pathways exist depending on whether you have single or double-stranded DNA breaks. So where do these mutations occur? They can occur in the person who inherited this from one of their parents, so in the germline. And they can also come from the tumor. So the germline DNA mutations, as shown here, are inherited by regular Mendelian genetics. Once a person has the tumor, which is represented in the yellow circle, there's probably mutations there, but not from the germline. But we know that tumor tends to uh, mutate over time, and you could end up with a single tumor mutation that now is an abnormality that is potentially targetable. If that tumor has another DNA hit, you could end up with a double tumor mutation. And so this is one of the things we have to remember when we test patients is that things can change in the tumor over time, whereas they don't change in the germline. Here's an instance where the carrier 
has a germline mutation, and that tumor has a DNA hit, and now has a germline mutation as well as a tumor mutation. So the, these are the two sort of circumstances you can end up with. You first have to understand the germline versus somatic issues. Before you can order testing, you know, you have to decide what you want to test for. So in, in germline mutations, we can test using a saliva, blood, buffy coat, buccal smear, and they can be done either as a single test or in a panel that includes some of these DDR genes listed here. I personally prefer a panel rather than a singular two gene because in prostate it's more informative. So the kind of results you get are the test is either positive for a pathogenic mutation, in which case that patient should be definitely referred for genetic counseling, as well as something called cascade testing, which means other family members might be advised to undergo testing for this pathogenic mutation so that they could understand their risk for downstream cancer. A negative result means there's no known pathogenic mutation on this particular panel. And VUS, you might see this variant of unknown clinical significance. At the moment, this result should be treated as negative until further information is available. So which patients should be tested for germline mutations? Certainly, those with a positive family history for cancer should be considered for germline testing, regardless of the stage of disease. Those with DDR mutations in the family. So BRCA2, BRCA1, and ATM are some of the main germline mutations that we see in prostate cancer. In the case of prostate cancer patients with a negative family history, the NCCN is now recommending that those with intermediate or high-risk localized prostate cancer, biochemical relapse, or metastatic prostate cancer of any kind have germline testing because it has clinical therapeutic implications. Again, 1 in 10 men with metastatic prostate cancer have germline DNA repair mutations, and so this is why this recommendation has been adopted by the NCCN. And then this is a bit more controversial and was not adopted by the NCCN, but it's worth thinking about. Those with ductal or intraductal histology, and this is becoming more and more understood, the potential significance of this. So but I can't emphasize it enough who should have um, genetic counseling. Any patients with a pathogenic or likely pathogenic germline mutation and all patients with a strong family history of cancer even without a germline mutation. So that should be a takeaway message. So what about testing for somatic mutations or the, the tumors? Who would you want to test for this? Well, this is my approach. I mean, I don't usually send somatic testing unless I'm going to use that information to decide about a therapy, whether it's an investigational agent or hopefully the newer PARP inhibitors. But at least I will know from my germline testing that I've already gotten if there's a germline mutation. But if I want to push it further and see if I have a BRCA2, for example, that's happened during somatic mutations, that's when I will do this testing. But remember, the presence of a pathogenic mutation in the tumor testing may actually be from germline because it's all part of the same DNA. 
So if you haven't done germline testing, but you get tumor testing that shows a, like a BRCA2, then you need to go back and figure out, is this of germline origin or is it just from the tumor? Because again, of the importance on other family members and the need for cascade testing and genetic counseling. So the tests that are available to look at tumor DNA, we, tissue is considered the gold standard, at least at this point, although liquid biopsy is coming a long way, either CTCs or um, circulating tumor DNA, looking at various genes. As far as tissue sources, you know, you can go anywhere, but it's really much more successful getting a soft tissue rather than a bone biopsy. The other thing is, it's germline testing is way more established and standardized in terms of their reporting than somatic testing is. So that has a, a bit more of a way to go. So somatic testing could show you these DDR mutations. And I've already mentioned if you don't know whether it's germline or not, you need to go back and do the germline testing for presence of DDR in the tumor. And again, I, I just can't emphasize this enough, the tumor specimen that you send off is only going to tell you the status of the tumor at the time you biopsy. It doesn't mean that a year or two from now, there might not be new changes that are targetable with some other drugs. Tumor testing with tissue can also be a problem if it's older than three to five years. And I hope that this gave you a sense of how we use genetic testing, either germline or somatic testing, in the context of patient care and when we would go on to act on that in the, the smaller percentage of patients that will have various mutations. We're going to be talking a bit about this family of drugs we're introducing now in prostate cancer pop inhibitors that we've been using for a number of years now in ovarian and, and breast cancer. So PARP are a family of proteins, a family of enzymes uh, that basically are in charge of transmitting signaling signals by marking other proteins or DNA. They, they basically go next to a protein or, or a chain of DNA where something is happening, and they add poly-ADP ribose chains to tag them. And by tagging them, they mark them to start a signaling process. There are many uh, PARP proteins, but we're going to focus here in, in PARP1 and PARP2 because they have an important role in detecting the sites of DNA single-strand breaks and once they have detected them, they sit on these breaks, they add these poly-ADP ribose chains around them, okay? And then they move out, the proteins move out, and the DNA with the tags with this poly-ADP ribose chain is calling basically for other effector proteins to go there and do the job to repair the, the DNA damage, okay? And it's important what I said, they go there, they tag, and then they have to move away to allow for the repair to properly happen. So PARP inhibitors are a family of drugs that inhibit the catalytic function of, of the PARP enzymes. So basically they stop this process of tacking that we call parylation. But on the top of that, we also now know that part of the anti-tumor activity of this drug is because when they are paired with the protein, and the protein tries to go to the DNA, 
first of all, it's not, a, it's not longer allowed to tag the DNA, so it's not able to initiate the cascade of signaling to, for, for the repair to occur. But also, it doesn't allow the protein to move out again. And by blocking it, it causes what we call traps of the protein with the DNA. And this is important because the next time the cell is going to try to replicate the genome, the, the replication fork is not going to be able to proceed through these traps. It's going it's to find an, an obstacle, and this is going to generate more DNA damage and, and the collapse of the process of replication. So two main mechanisms of action, but one is they stop the process of parilation, so they, they block the initiation of the repair signaling, but also they cause damage to the cell. So if they don't allow for the repair to start, what happens is that these single-strand breaks will progress to double-strand breaks, which are more toxic for the cell. In normal conditions, these double-strand breaks would be repaired by homologous recombination, and to be honest, the effect of PARP inhibitor would be neutral for the cell because it will be able to, to overcome the damage. However, when we have a cell that is deficient for these homologous recombination processes, the accumulation of double strand breaks will continue to proceed and will lead to a process of cell death. This is, what, uh, this is the, the concept of synthetic lethality applied to PARP inhibitors. So synthetic lethality is a biological concept by which two events that when they occur separately are not lethal, but when they occur at the same time on a cell uh, become too toxic for the cell. So in this case, uh, inhibiting PARP is not toxic for the cell if the cell is able to repair, but when the cell is incapable to repair double strand breaks, inhibiting PARP starts a process that will lead to cell death. So this was first demonstrated around 15 years ago now by several groups uh, in, that in tumor models that were lacking BRCA1 or BRCA2, and BRCA1 or BRCA2 are key proteins for the process of repairing double strand breaks, these tumors would become very sensitive to PARP inhibitors. So <clears throat> this concept was rapidly moved into the clinic using a compound called Olaparate. And in a phase one trial, a proof of concept was generated that patients primarily with ovarian cancer, uh, patients that had these mutations responded very well to, to PARP inhibition with Olaparate. And there was actually one, one prostate cancer patient that came that actually achieved a PSA response and an improvement on the scans of the, of the bone metastasis. So there are right now four PARP inhibitors in latest stage of clinical development of, of, in prostate cancer, Olaparib, Rucaparib, Talosoparib, and Niraparib. Uh, there is another PARP inhibitor called Beliparib that has a, a less of a potency, particularly when it comes to trapping the PARP enzyme into the DNA, and it's still in, in development, but primarily in combination trials. The first test of a PARP inhibitor in, let's call it a sporadic or a ovarian cancer, was an expansion cohort in prostate cancer in the first in-man trial of Niraparib a few years back. And we started to see some, some CTC responses and some patients who achieved prolonged stabilization, but that was a very small cohort of, of 12 patients. With this data in the early 2010s, some data started to emerge about uh, the potential for these drugs in prostate cancer. 
It was known that prostate cancer is a disease characterized by high genomic instability. And most of the preclinical data supported the development in patients that have this high uh, burden of translocations, particularly patients with, with edge rearrangements. So the proof of concept the study for developing PARP inhibitors in prostate cancer was the TOPARP child. It was an investigator-initiated study that tested olaparib in a population of patients with metastatic prostate cancer without prior knowledge of their molecular background. So we treated 50 patients with the idea of then going later back to their biopsies and checking actually whether the fact that they responded or not to olaparib correlated with a particular genomic background. <clears throat> Our primary endpoint was then was response rate, and we used a wide definition of response, including PSA, radiology, or CTC, because what we were looking for was for a signal to support further development of, of the drug, and then we look at other things like PFS or overall survival. What we learned from those initial 50 patients was that around a third of them actually presented some benefit, either in the scans or in the PSA falls or by conversions of the CTC counts going low with the patient becoming stable for a period of time. And out of these 33%, not all of them, but the vast majority of them actually were those who in the tumor harbor mutations in these DNA repair genes. Again, the, the commonest one was BRCA2, and actually all the patients who had BRCA2 mutations in that initial study responded. So after that, we moved to the second stage in the trials. It was a multi-stage trial to prospectively validate this concept by looking for patients that had these alterations and then treating them with olaparib. So the hypothesis was if we enrich our population for patients with these mutations, we will see a higher response rate than when we treat an unselected population. So we tested over 700 patients until we managed to treat around 100 patients that had somatic or germline alterations in these genes the population we tested. So basically we were testing two different dose levels of the drug because of some data that we had generated over the years in testing different uh, formulations of the drug, but that's not important for what we are discussing today. Just consider the total, okay? These were patients that had received docetaxel, and almost all of them had also received either aviraterone and or enzaluramide, and that were progressing actively at the time of starting the treatment. You can see that actually there is a high proportion of patients with visceral disease and a high proportion of patients with measurable disease. So our primary endpoint, again, was response, and as we hypothesized, we saw that by enriching the population for patients with DNA repermutations, we saw a higher response rate than when treated an unselected population. So around half of the patients derived some benefit, but if you look at the patient-by-patient at the patient scenario, it was very clear that patients with alterations in BRCA1 or BRCA2, represented in, in blue in this waterfall plot, were the ones more commonly uh, responding, but also achieving the more profound and more long-lasting responses. Other phase two trials have now tested different PARP inhibitors. None of this has been published yet, but some of these trials have been reporting uh, preliminary analysis over the last couple of years. The Triton trial is testing rucaparib in patients with metastatic prostate cancer. This is the panel of genes they are testing for, which is pretty much similar to, to what we were testing in TOPARP. And what they reported last year at ESMO was a preliminary analysis of the first 57 patients with BRCA1 or 2 alterations. And similar response rates were seen, and also a similar proportion of patients achieving long-lasting responses. 
nidaparib is also being tested in prostate cancer. The phase two trial is Galahad. Again, the eligibility criteria is very similar. They are looking for, they are using another strategy that is testing cell-free DNA rather than testing the tumor. They are recruiting patients that are known to have these DNA repair alterations. And the response rate they are uh, seeing in the BRCA mutant population, again, are very, very similar to what the, the Triton trial is observing with rocaparib. In the non-BRCA population, it's a bit more difficult to understand because in the, in the preliminary report, they only reported those with bilelic loss of the protein, but they treated other patients too. I think we just need to wait until the trial is published and we can assess all the data properly. Last, talazoparib is the, is the fourth part inhibitor that is being developed in prostate cancer, and they just presented for the first time preliminary data on the first 53 patients with DNA repair mutations that have been tested in this trial. Uh, the response rate in BRCA1 or BRCA2 uh, mutant prostate cancer is 68% when combining radiology and PSA falls. So again, similar to what we saw in TOPAR-B, that it was over 75%, so pretty much similar. And Interestingly, the RPFS for the BRCA1, BRCA2 mutant population was 8.2 months, so exactly the same as we observed in, in TOPARP. And these are patients in very late stage, in the very late stage setting, post-taxins, post-avienza, so actually achieving an RPFS over 8 months, I think it's quite remarkable. So based in part on the TOPARP data, PROFOUND was designed as the randomized phase 3 trials of Olaparib versus physician choice of aviraterone or enzalutamide for patients who had already progressed on enzalutamide or aviraterone first. The trial was stratified into two cohorts. Cohort A included patients with alterations in BRCA1, BRCA2, or ATM, because these are the, the most common. And then cohort B included patients that had alterations in any of a list of 15 genes. So patients were randomized to, to one to the experimental arm, Olaparib, compared to the, to the control arm. And we offered the patients the possibility to be crossed over to Olaparib upon progression to, to a standard of care. This was a, a non non-blinded trial. And the primary endpoint was RPFS and not OS, precisely because we were offering the, the option of crossover. A higher proportion of patients with menstrual disease, higher proportion of patients with visceral disease, as I was saying, maybe because this is more representative of the BRCA population. This is something we are, we are learning now. All patients had been treated with aviorenza, but actually most of them, 65% of them, had been treated with ocetaxel or for The primary endpoint was radiological progression-free survival in the cohort A population, so in those patients with alterations in BRCA1, BRCA2, or ATM. And you can see by the Kaplan-Meier curves that clearly Olaparib improved RPFS in this population compared to Avi-Orenza once patients had progressed first on Orenza or Avi. The RPFS was over seven months, so again, it seems quite consistent with the prior data. It seems to be around this seven, eight months as median RPFS that was clearly superior to those patients in the, in the control arm. Overall survival was a secondary endpoint, and to be honest, it's not mature yet as to be uh, properly discussed. But it was very interesting that when we took the first planet look with only 38% maturity, and despite actually 80% of the patients progressing on aviorenza, crossed it over to the olaparib arm, still we were able to see the, the survival curves splitting. And we need to wait until we have this mature data, but this is very encouraging. And this also reflects that actually probably the earlier we use these drugs, the better, because the later we go, the patient probably will have more toxicities and probably will end up dropping out for several reasons. 
So some initial subgroup analysis of the child, trying to understand who is the population who benefits the most. But we can start to see that, as we have shown in, in TOPAR B and in other trials, there are differences depending on the gene that has been lost and that confers more or less magnitude of sensitivity. And it's very funny that if you look at, at this plot and you see the bars, the degree of sensitivity is pretty much the same as the bars that I was showing you from the preclinical experiments in the laboratories. So what have we learned over with the development of PARP inhibitors in prostate cancer over the last five years? So one is that PARP inhibitors are active in metastatic prostate cancer, particularly in those cases with EDR gene aberrations, that the exact gene that is also matters, and that we probably still don't know which is the right population to treat. Clearly, BRCA2 mutations are the long-hanging fruit, but there is benefit in other populations that we probably need to uh, refine a bit more for the optimal use of, of these patients. Uh, it is reassuring to see data consistently uh, reported from different PARP inhibitors in different clinical trials with a slightly different strategies of selection, but at the end you see some numbers that keeps repeating, suggesting that the effect is, is really consistent. And I think that is very important that Profound has set a mark as the first ever precision medicine randomized trial in prostate cancer that was conducted and that is positive. And I think that is going to be a game changer for the practice in prostate cancer because it's not only opening the opportunity of a new treatment, but actually it's opening the, the opportunity of a new concept that is to molecularly certify patients. And I'm sure this is going to lead to cascade opportunities of identifying other alterations that are targetable and that is actually not only going to bring us a new drug to the clinic, but it's actually going to accelerate the development of other compounds in the field of prostate cancer. And this is a bit of a summary of the, of the status of the different PARP inhibitors that have been evaluated already by regulatory agencies. This is basically all three, Olaparib, Rucaparib, and Niraparib, were granted breakthrough designation. So I'm going to be talking about two different things. Firstly, some of the most common side effects that we see. And then secondly, what are the clinical trials and how can we also extend brachiness to other patients that may not have uh, the BRCA mutation or DNA repair mutations? So these are some of the common toxicities, PARP inhibitors. Most common, of course, is hematologic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and neutropenia. Nausea can occur as well. It's an oral drug, and there can be nausea involved with its administration. Fatigue and asthenia, again, a common side effect with chemotherapy and liver function enzyme elevations. For most of these adverse events, they're low-grade except for anemia, uh, grade 3 to 4 AEs, leading to treatment eruption, dose reduction, or discontinuation are more common in PARP inhibitors than the controls. And then often these toxicities are tolerated after tailoring the dose or adjusting it for a given patient. So let's look at some of the individual trials and see what the rates of anemia are. Uh, this is the TOPARP-A trial with Laprib. As we see here, the most common side effect is anemia, 20% of patients. TOPARP-B, very similar pattern, maybe a little bit more anemia. And Triton-2, similar pattern, asthenia, nausea, anemia in about 17%. So we're, we're looking at about the 20% range for a significant anemia. Galahad, same pattern, 29% with anemia, thrombocytopenia in 15%, and the neutropenia in 7%. In the profound trial, I, I don't think the pattern is much different. Again, about a 20% rate of anemia and about 1.2% rate of nausea. 
So how do we manage this? Um, nausea, vomiting, hemologic toxicities. We don't want to, of course, lead to dose delays and interruptions, but if you need to, you have to do it. With neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, and anemia, you have to monitor your blood counts, uh, reduce the dose as appropriate, and to think about how there may be other drug interactions that may occur with the patients who are being treated with really polypharmacy for pain medications and other issues as well. So moving on to different trials, there are some trials that are now accruing patients. Uh, this is the PROPEL trial. We're looking at Laprib uh, plus abiraterone, and uh, the primary endpoint is progression-free survival. And this has been compared to placebo plus abiraterone, randomized on a one-to-one basis. Again, there seems to be some synergy between PARP inhibitors as well as some of the uh, next-generation antiandrogens. Triton 3 is a phase 3 trial, and this is taking patients who have received prior next-generation hormonal therapy, and they're being randomized to rucaparib or the physician's choice of either docetaxel, enzalutamide, or abiraterone. And again, the primary endpoint is radiographic progression-free survival. The MAGNITUDE trial is a phase 3 study, first-line castrate-resistant prostate cancer in two different cohorts, those who have DNA repair mutations and those who are not positive DNA repair mutations. Patients are randomized to the combination of niraparib plus abiraterone or abiraterone alone. And again, the primary endpoint is progression-free survival. The QUEST trial is a phase 1-2 non-randomized study. It's multi-centered. It's also looking at niraparib in combination with anti-PDL1. Uh, and abiraterone. This is primary look to define toxicities and objective response rate. The TALPRO trial is a phase three study of talazoparib. Part one is to confirm the dose and talazoparib being combined with enzalutamide. And then part two will take that and look at this in terms of radiographic uh, progression-free survival. It's designed to take unselected patients uh, for DDR, and they'll be randomized to uh, uh, receive talazaprib once a day, and then this will be in combination with enzalutamide. A phase two trial is being performed with viraparib, and it's being combined with abiraterone and prednisone. Uh, the primary endpoints are PSA response rate and also whether ETS fusions predict response. And in some of the preliminary reports, there doesn't seem to be a difference between AVI plus prednisone plus verapro versus abiraterone plus prednisone alone. ETS fusions did not predict response, and an exploratory analysis identified a DNA repair mutation with outcomes. So again, with this DRD mutation, 90% had a PSA response rate versus the wild type. So again, we need rational combinations, and this is where we can expand out our use of BRCA and uh, BRCAness. And this is quote-unquote BRCAness because what we're trying to do is induce BRCAness by reducing the levels of DNA repair mutations. So I think we have to think of this in terms of the fact that you're seeing response rates of 50% with these drugs. Half of patients don't respond. Why? Well, we'd like to try to make these unresponsive patients responsive. Eventually, as we see with all these drugs, drug resistance does become inevitable. And then we'd also like to deepen the response, increase the duration, and then, as I said before, widen the applicability of these PARP inhibitors. So can we increase the survivals by doing this? Can we make the tail of the curve longer in these patients? Uh, This is why we need these rational combinations. There are other functions, uh, PARP inhibitors, aside from uh, DNA repair. And um, as we know, uh, the repair is is in the single-stranded end of DNA, and it also does regulate transcription. 
PARP inhibitors will affect inflammatory genes, and this is, again, one of the reasons or rationales why we're going to combine it with immune therapy. And it will also promote oncogenic phenotypes and will also be involved in transcription of the androgen receptor as well as ERG. And that was the reason before why this was uh, looked at in terms of a marker in this disease. So these uh, castrate-resistant tumor cells will also show increased levels of PARP1 activity. It's a randomized phase 2 study from the NCI uh, taking abiraterone and prednisone uh, by itself or abiraterone and prednisone plus verlaparib. And the primary endpoints were confirmed PSA response rate. And again, this asking the question whether ETS fusion predicts response. There was no difference in the PSA response rate. Uh, there was really no difference, significant difference in measurable disease and no difference in progression-free survival. If you start looking at an exploratory analysis based upon the DNA repair mutations, confirmed PSA response was 90% versus 56.7%. Again, positive DNA repair. PSA declines, resist responses, progression-free survival all seem to be better in those with DNA repair mutations versus the wild type. So th- this trial, I think, is fairly interesting, as we saw from the phase three study. Uh, that was the genesis of that particular trial, uh, looking at a laparib combined with abiraterone versus placebo plus abiraterone. It was a randomized phase two. And the primary endpoint was radiographic progression-free survival. So this is the radiographic progression-free survival curve. It's, it's fairly intriguing. We've got higher rate of events uh, in the monotherapy arm, and uh, there's a, a difference of about five months in the overall radiographic progression-free survival. But when we look at the secondary endpoint, there's no difference in overall survival. Small numbers, randomized, phase two trial. I don't really think much of that. But I think the intriguing part of this trial is the the third graph on the right, where you look at the wild type of patients, and you look at the difference between laparib plus api versus abi. And this is supported that concept of, of inducing brachydis. The hazard ratio is 0.52 in favor of the combination. And you also see the same with the patients who've had a DNA repair. But this is basically saying that you may be able to induce brachydis by giving this combination to patients. And of course, that larger trial we talked about before is going to confirm these particular observations. Now, this is where we have a little bit of a problem in the adverse events. What is uh, particularly concerning are the cardiovascular events. This is something that's been identified with abiraterone. So as we see on the right, laparib plus abiraterone, myocardial infarction, four patients, one uh, cardiac failure, uh, one patient, compared to abiraterone alone, only one. So this is something I think in, for the future you've got to be careful about selecting your patients for this. I think pre-existing cardiovascular disease is something I would not r- recommend. This is an interesting concept, the concept of hypoxia. What does hypoxia have to do with prostate cancer? Well, hypoxia can be shown to downregulate DNA double-stranded repair, BRCA1, BRCA2, and RAD51. And this has been seen in multiple cell lines, including prostate cancer. And this concept has been looked at in ovarian cancer as well as in breast cancer. So as we see here, uh, looking at these particular agents, there are three different human prostate cancer cell lines, D145 and PC3 and GM05757. And as we see, there's a down-regulation of these particular uh, markers. The labrib works in a significant subset of castrate-resistant prostate cancer patients, most of those with loss of function of DNA repair pathways. A labrib and a combination may work synergistically, even in absence of mutation of DNA repair via this hypoxia pathway and this may actually be in a way of inducing brachyness, and then uh, we're actually moving forward with this combination in castrate-resistant disease.
This is the design of the trial, again, as I mentioned before. So there are trials that, these are just a small smattering of the trials that have been looking at combining a laparib or other PARP inhibitors with, with PD-1 or PDL one agents. Laparib was duvalumab, pembrolizumab. Also, there are trials of comparing this to abiraterone, prednisone, or enzalutamide. I want to thank the audience, and thank you to my colleagues. This activity was provided in partnership with Access Medical Education. To receive your free CME credit, be sure to complete the post-test and evaluation at reachmd.com slash CME. This is CME on ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.